It's behind some of the biggest successes in tech history, from Facebook and LinkedIn to Airbnb and Instagram. Greylock opened its doors in Boston 50 years ago, but since landing in Silicon Valley in 1999, it's backed hit after hit. The venture capital firm has backed 170 now public companies, four of them worth more than 10 billion dollars. Joining me today on this edition of Studio 1.0, Greylock partners David Z and John Lilly. So great to have you guys here. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for having us. David, you've been at the firm, what, like 15 years? Year. 16 yeah. years now, John? Just four. And David, you really put Greylock on the map in Silicon Valley. How did you do that? Well, uh, first of all, I'd say, uh, you know, it's really a partnership effort. I'll take some credit, but it's a really a team effort, as, as always is at Greylock. And in the early 2000s, we made a move to say every partner should have an operating background. And that allows us, we think, to connect better to the entrepreneurs, to find the great opportunities, to win them, and help build those companies. John, you were the CEO of Mozilla. You started your career as a scientist at Apple. I think that mostly means I didn't ship code when I was at Apple, mostly <laughs> when I was doing experiments and playing around the edges, but yeah. So why Greylock? I wouldn't fit at most firms, or I wouldn't want to work at most firms. Why not? Because I, I like people who make things. And uh, at Greylock, everybody was a good, high-integrity person, but also really valued making things and products and operating, like David says. And you know, it's characteristic of David to answer the question, like, you made, you made Greylock. David's like, no, 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 it was everybody else. So David, you, you, know, you did find Facebook, and you did find LinkedIn. You convinced Reid Hoffman to, to join the firm. How did you do that? How do you do that? You know, again, I think it really comes down to, um, we believe if you come from product um, and you have that background and you have that net network, there's an authenticity. Most people don't remember this, but in 2005, when you know, Facebook took the investment, like, the valuation was $500 million, which seemed, to, I think, to most people. There were just students on it at the, the time. Right, and not that many, right? And so and it seemed like an insane valuation. And I think every, many people looked at that and said, Dave Z and Greylock have lost their minds. I think, and not just from the outside, like I think people inside, partners inside Greylock said, this is insane and this is not what we do. Who said that? <laughs> we did have partners. We had, we, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that's the characteristic of our partnership is we like to disagree. I mean, we like to push each other. There were some partners that were saying, this is going to ruin the firm. This is a huge mistake. Facebook is going to ruin it's the firm. Ruin the firm. Do these people still work at Greylock? <laughs> uh, some of them do. Some of them have retired, but not because of that. Now, John, you're behind some of the newer hits: Dropbox, Instagram, Tumblr. How do you feel the big shoes of David Z? Uh, what I've learned is you probably don't try. And you know, for me, Instagram is a good example where I brought it in, and people didn't love it. Really? Yeah, I mean, Reed wasn't quite sure it would work. You know, it's one of those things that I really believed in Kevin, and I, I, I had enough affinity for the category and the product that I really wanted to do it. Why didn't Reed think it would work? I don't know. Reed, Reed said some words, and who knows exactly what he meant. But uh, he, he just thought he thought it was interesting, but not huge. Is there a science to it? Is there a formula to finding these things? Uh, you know, I think with Kevin, it took a while for me to convince him to raise money, and it looks, I chased him for the better part of six months. I mean, Airbnb is another example where, like, this one I was like, I don't get it. I don't get it. But, you know, Reed was on the other side of that and pushed really hard to make it through. We think that dialectic, combined with respect for each other, allows us to get to really good outcomes. It's good that you own that. <laughs> oh, I got lots of things, so. And then, you know, 15 or 16 years in this business, if you're not, making some mistakes like that, you're probably not doing your job. The New Yorker article about Mark Andreessen, in that piece, he called Bill Gurley of Benchmark his Newman. Who's your Newman? Do you have a Newman? 
We may be each other's new ones, actually. So. Yeah, I don't. I got to tell you, I don't think about VCs very much. Like I, I, I like being at companies. So I like thinking about companies. But is there competition between you guys? I find John and I come at things from very different perspectives. And so there's times when John's like, I don't understand what you are talking about. <laughs> yeah, and there's times when I look at him and go, I don't understand what you're talking about. And we'll hash it through. I understand that you know the disagreement can lead to better outcomes, but does it create tension? I mean, yeah, of course. It, it, so <laughs> you bring in a SaaS company and you're arguing with Anil Bushri, our partner Anil, who's like CEO of Workday, which is one of the two or three best SaaS companies in the world. And you're arguing with him about the merits of the SaaS company. You bring in a a social network or a payments company, and you have to argue with Reed or David about it. And so that's, um, you know, stressful. Um, on the other hand, like, what, what do you, like, do you want to play for the, play in the big leagues or not? How would you rate competition for deals right now? It's intense. I think it's intense at every level. I, I think is it, it is, like more competitive than ever? It seems like a pretty competitive four years to me. At some level, I would say it's never been more competitive. On the other level, when you get underneath that a little bit, it's the same five or six firms maybe minus one or two, maybe plus one or two. Look, there's too much money out there right now. I think that risk is mispriced. I think there's not a lot of fear. There's just a lot of belief and, and not a lot of fear. And those are you know worrisome times, I think, and can be dangerous if, if unchecked. But on the other hand, if you look at it, there's only a handful of firms that you know we really find ourselves competing with again and again. And so there is a sort of boundary to that. It's, it's easier to start a company, but it's not easier to get them all the way to the finish line. So Reed and I are spending a lot of time thinking about what it means to scale, what an order of magnitude scaling really is. Bill Gurley says we're in a risk bubble and companies and investors are taking on too much risk. How would you guys describe it? I think we're being asked to take on a lot of risk. I think there is a lot of money in the system, and I think there's a lot of optimism. That's causing um, pricing to be higher. That's causing expectations to be higher. Um, and I think we're asking to take higher risk than you know probably since 99, 2000 timeframe. Um, on the flip side, I would say the belief that mobile is a, you know a fundamental shift and is probably only in the third inning right now still. Um, and you can see how that is changing uh, the world where businesses that would have been terrible businesses, you know, an Uber, um, an Airbnb, et cetera, in previous generations now are enabled by mobile in ways that, you know, weren't possible before. And I think you can also look at public companies right now um, as a benchmark and say, it's not clear they're, the, the equivalent companies in the public markets, it's not clear that they're so overvalued if you look at their multiples. And so there's a bunch of sort of mixed signals that leads to an environment, I think, though, where risk is mispriced for us. Would you use the term bubble? You know, we, I, we don't sit around and talk about a bubble or not, and we certainly talk a lot about those prices being expensive, but we make our decisions on a very micro basis based on is this a great entrepreneur to be with or not. And so as long as we're out hustling and finding the entrepreneurs and the opportunities, yes, I think we're feeling the, the prices we're paying are higher uh, and, and, and we're asking to take on risk. But we're finding great entrepreneurs too that we're excited about what they're doing. You're trying to create companies that are billions or to 10 billions or more of, of value. And so it doesn't matter too much if you overpay, but you really have to keep your eye on, on what your target is. It doesn't matter if you overpay. At the early, early stages. Why take on the risk if it's too expensive? We have companies that are out there that are exciting companies that are losing a lot of money that have huge bankrolls huge bank accounts now because they've been able to raise at such non-dilutive levels and bring in a lot of capital. It's almost unprecedented. And so, you know, that's the opportunity for those companies to build real businesses within those capital uh, lack of constraints in that case. Um, but it's also the risk because at some point that music stops, those chairs stop and you're either sitting down or you're not. 
John, do you think we're in a bubble? I think there's a new Google to get, be built. I think there's a new Office suite like, like Microsoft to get built. There's some really big, important companies that will feel expensive and then turn out to be cheap. The truth is some stuff is wildly overpriced and will look obviously so in retrospect. There's some stuff that feels wildly overpriced and will look the opposite in retrospect. And it's, that's, our, that's our job is to make sure that ours aren't the ones yeah. that are wildly <laughs> Ours are all <laughs> priced exactly right. That's um, our job. Yeah. Well, like, you know, a Dropbox, for example, you guys invested in Dropbox, but you didn't get a board seat. Why did that happen? Well, because it was, we were the B round, which is, you know, a wildly expensive B. But it'll turn out in retrospect to be pretty, uh, pretty good bargain for us because they were riding a very, very large wave that just got bigger and bigger and bigger. How do you protect yourself as investors? How do you hedge your own risks? You know, we don't, um, we don't tend to use financial engineering as the way to do that. We tend so to you don't have liquidation preferences? Not, not in almost everything we do. But you're talking about unusual liquidation preferences, right, right. As, as a protection, yeah. downside protection. We don't do anything fancy there. Um, our biggest thing is alignment with the entrepreneur. And those tend to misalign the entrepreneur. And, and that comes out in these times, in the weirdest moments, just when you don't want it, that misalignment can really hurt you. We tend to manage our risk by picking well and having a diversified portfolio. There are all of these unicorns. They're worth more than a billion dollars. But are they really because of these liquidation preferences? And does that mean all of these valuations are inflated? Well, the truth is valuations are just valuations. They're just numbers about how much capital you put in and how much you diluted. And so until these things become really liquid markets, until you have buyers and sellers in a market, you just don't know what the numbers are. If you want to be a public company, you're going to have to cross the chasm to being held and evaluated on public company metrics. And if you can't cross those chasms, the valuations you're carrying from the early days, particularly if they're at these high levels, can really hurt you. And then, of course, there's the opportunity to be acquired. And so you need acquirers that are willing to value you for strategic or whatever reasons and have the wherewithal in their own cap tables to buy you to justify that. And if you don't have those two things, you get in a lot of trouble. What about burn rates? Do those concern you? <laughs> sure. Like, the, what else matters, really, other than product and whether people love it and how much you're spending? Have you been warning your companies? Yes, we have. I think we look at companies. I mean, at the end of the day, you private companies run losses. That's why venture capitalists exist and other forms of capital. We have a weird situation where we have companies that have so much capital because they've been able to raise it, that it becomes really hard to frame, is this burn rate too high now? Because even at that burn rate, they have enough capital to go on for years. Do you think there's too much arrogance in Silicon Valley? I think there's always been too much arrogance. I think you talk to, look at guys like Andy Grove and Steve Jobs, like people who are gonna change the world believe in themselves pretty, pretty robustly. They like move out of my way, I'm just gonna make this happen. So I think there's, uh, there's a lack of fear. I think a lack of fear is a little scary, but I don't think there's too much arrogance. So I'm going to throw a few examples out there. Uber at $50 billion. Would you put money in Uber at $50 billion? I have not looked at Uber's financials so, in recent times, so hard to say. It would be a high bar. There are not a lot of public companies that are at that level. So they would, they would have to be numbers where you can see them crossing that chasm uh, already. John? I think I'm, I'm looking for companies where I get 5, 10, 15 times returns. And so imagine, I can imagine them as a $500 billion company, I suppose. Really? But I don't think I would, that's probably not where I put my dollars today. I think it's a big opportunity, but I, I wouldn't invest my venture dollars right now. I'd put it somewhere else. So let's talk about companies that you know. What could disrupt Facebook? 
if they can't stay current in providing value to that scale of a user, that's their biggest risk, I think. Like the only thing that can really unseat them is a pl platform shift. And they nailed it to mobile. Like, I mean, they, they had some missteps, but the strength of their network let them, gave them a little more time. And now on mobile, like, who else is there really? Right. But look at history. So Microsoft beat IBM, Google beat Microsoft, Facebook right. is beating Google in mobile. That's right. I think Mark is using his market cap. So he used 10% of his market cap to buy WhatsApp. I think he's really aggressively using the asset that he has, which is his market capitalization, to find the next wave and make sure he's there. I also think the, you know, most of those examples, eventually complacency snuck in, and Mark is the least complacent guy you're going to meet. Chamath Palihapitiya, Social Capital Partnership, early Facebook employee, he just came out saying he thinks the Facebook killer is going to be built in the next two to three years. It's going to happen. I don't think that's right. So I think it, you really need a new platform to emerge. And it's not obvious to me what that platform is. I think we're still relatively early on mobile. Now, I think what's possible is that we're all starting to finally internalize what it means to have a, like a tiny supercomputer that's connected to the global internet in our pockets all the time, all the time, or strapped to your wrist exactly. or whatever. It's not VR or AR that's suddenly going to go disrupt markets. It's going to be something that looks like a toy for a little while. But I don't think the two, next two or three years is going to be exactly when that happens. I'm a big Chamath fan, but he's also been known to exaggerate a little bit at times in his excitement. Can Snapchat? really disrupt Facebook? I think it's unlikely to displace Facebook because it's not the same thing. I think they're both going to be big companies for a long time. You've said Twitter is a big mistake, that you didn't invest in Twitter. Um, what do you think about Twitter's future now? There's a lot of questions about what Twitter's place in history will be. I think any time you've been a big successful company and you carry a, a high public valuation, you know, you've got a big target on your back. And so you're going to get criticized. I think they have times to figure out how to stay relevant, how to stay as valuable as they are today. I think we've forgotten like how transformative Twitter has been. And now with Periscope, with an investment we have, Meerkat, you can actually see things like in real time and live. And so I think that stuff is very, very likely to persist. I do think Twitter is, I think the way that early Twitter users use Twitter is not the way that Twitter users use it today. I think there's something that Twitter is losing moving away from that. But being the global place where people can, like the best people in the world can talk about things, that's, that's a pretty neat uh, and unique position. Why isn't Meerkat dead? You know, why does Meerkat still have a chance? Uh, Meerkat's doing really well. Madonna released her latest single on it. It's time for this to take off because it's really literally one button, you push it, and you're broadcasting to the world. That feels like an opportunity space that's very, very large. Yeah, I, I mean, I would just say, I think it's way too early to write the story of the winner or the loser in that cycle. There's obviously, there's been a rise in angel investing. AngelList has now created a structure by which you can invest, uh, you know, in a person who then invests in companies. How does that impact you guys? Do you worry about that? I think more companies getting created no matter how you look at it. And our goal is just to figure out which are the interesting ones. And we have a few different That's times. such a politically correct no, response. No, no, it really, it really isn't. Like for, for a fund like ours, when you've got a billion dollars to deploy, you can catch them at a few different places and still be fine. And so just trying to focus on signal and not get distracted by the noise, that's, that's the challenge. What do you guys do on a daily basis to like make sure you're catching, make sure you're, you're connecting with the entrepreneur that you want to to back. There's a lot of shoe leather. There's a lot of sort of 
you know, going out and hitting the street and connecting and finding that moment because you want to hit the moment that that person is, you know, ready to start a company or start a funding raise. You got to be there at the right time. Every time we touch somebody, we try to say, you know, how can we help and how can we make this a, a value-added meeting for, for you two. So what are the hot trends now? What are you most excited about? Like, where is the next big opportunity? One is I think about, um, I think about search and intent and how do you find what you want. The search company I'm involved in, we started from scratch called Jack, Jack Mobile. And that, that, the insight is, if you go ask 100 people whether Google is perfect for search, like 99 will tell you it's all done, it's all finished. But then you say, well, you ask really you ask, every question you could ask Google, it, it knows the answer, and they say, well, that's, that's not really true. There are lots of questions that in this age of context where our phones know so much about us that Google's not very good at answering because Google's all about web and documents and sort of, in a lot of ways, the, the, old, the old world. For me personally, the future of digital media and the connections and, and social networking, and I stay pretty close to home on those topics. We're probably not going to do meal replacement drinks anytime soon. <laughs> Drones, there are not so much. five different kinds of munchery. Yeah. Well, that one I think is real. So we have a company called Sprig that, that we invested in that's growing like crazy. This entrepreneur named Goggin. But there are five, I don't know, 10 companies that do what Sprig does. Munchery, Postmates kind of, DoorDash. Right. Right, but how many restaurants are there? People eat like multiple times a day and practically every day. And so this one feels to me like if you're looking for something like, when you're, when you're investing in things, what you're trying to do is frequency and habits and things that, that are really uh, foundational, there will be a lot of competition there. And how do you make great food that people love and then how do you be operationally excellent at scale? That's the key. What about wearables? You're wearing your Apple Watch. I am wearing my <laughs> Apple Watch. I don't know what to make of it yet. I think wearables are ultimately going to be pretty important. I think that we're going to start seeing population data about here's what people like me did to live five years longer and things like that. Um, I, I think as a consumer category, they're a puzzle. I, I as much as I'm an Apple fanboy uh, for sure, I think that this is not going to be a great product for a little while for a lot of people. I think version two and three, when you don't have to carry a phone around anymore, you just got your watch. Actually, that work, that feels like a real thing to me. Do you think there are going to be apps in the future? What's the future of apps? I think the naive view has always been that things stay proprietary and then they always open. And I think especially since we grew up in the era of the web, that's what a lot of people think. I think that's unlikely to be true. I think what's going to happen is that something new is going to happen and some new platform is going to happen. Yeah, I think there's too many smart people working on too many smart things with access to too many consumers around the world for interesting explosions to come out of left field, not to come out of left field. The Ellen Powell versus Kleiner Perkins trial. What did you see in that? Let's see. I guess I would see a no-win situation for anybody, unfortunately. It was a tragedy, I think, all the way around. Why? I think that it was something that's not good for venture. It's not good for Kleiner. It's not, didn't turn out to be good for Ellen either. And so it just unfortunately turned out to be something where there was a lot of drama and a lot of pain and I'm not sure what good came out of it yet. So I'm hoping there will be some. I think there's some good lessons there about, you know, how you treat employees, um, maybe some lessons about document retention, <laughs> maybe some thoughts about you know, how you build your firms. I, I think at the meta level, the pressure that it puts on our industry uh, to make sure that we are representative of, of full diversity is very good, and we have a lot of work to do there. Until any firm like votes with their, their feet and with their wallets, get, they can be judged harshly. You know, part of the reason, obviously, I think Kleiner found itself in this position is, you know, 
Venture capital firms have historically had a problem with succession. How do you make sure Greylock's around for another 50 years? Greylock at 50 years can sometimes get told that it's too old or stodgy in some ways, but the truth is the reality in our business is you can't with the competitive nature of our business over that 50 years, you can't continue to survive and thrive unless you make really innovative changes. And so like that, like some of those partners surprising me and saying we should do Facebook, it's that sort of look towards innovation, that willingness to change that really keeps us going. John Lilly and David C., thank you both so much for joining us. It's been really great to have you here. Thank today. you for having us, Sam. Thank we you. Appreciate it.